It's 1986. You're in an anarcho-punk band, and you're in Chicago to play a show. Before making your way to the venue, you decide to take a detour to the Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park. There, you find exactly what you're looking for. The Haymarket Martyrs Memorial, commissioned 100 years earlier. The monument includes a statue of a cloaked woman, shielding the face of a dead man. It includes an inscription that reads, the day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you are throttling today. You take the heavy black anarchy flag that you brought with you and you place it in the woman's arms. That memorial in Chicago commemorates an event that has come to be known as the Haymarket Affair or the Haymarket Riot or the Haymarket Massacre, depending on who you ask. On May 4, 1886, a coalition of workers and activists and union organizers were on their third day of a general strike in demand of an eight-hour day. The previous day, police had opened fire on workers confronting strike breakers, and at least two of them were killed. In response, a group of local anarchists quickly organized a rally at Haymarket Square. And on the evening of the 4th, upwards of 3,000 people gathered to demonstrate against police violence. Before long, a large contingent of police arrived to break up the demonstration. As tensions escalated, a homemade dynamite bomb was lobbed at the advancing police force. Seven officers were killed or mortally wounded by the blast before the rest opened fire at the crowd, killing at least four protesters and injuring upwards of 70. It was a massacre. During the trial, evidence was presented which suggested that one of the anarchists may have been involved with making that bomb, while it was determined with near certainty that none of them threw it. Of the eight charged, one was sentenced to 15 years in prison, two had their death sentences commuted to life imprisonment, and one committed suicide while incarcerated. Four were executed. You may or may not be familiar with the Haymarket Affair, but at a time, the trial of those anarchists was major international news. News that a lot of people followed very, very closely. For some, it was about safety and security. For others, it was about liberty and human rights. It was a trial that felt very personal to many observers, and it inspired the next generation of young anarchists. One of those observers was a 17-year-old girl named Emma Goldman. Emma would become one of the most important people in the history of the anarchist and feminist movements. She stood for the rights of the working people and fought for equality for women's minds and bodies. She was jailed, deported, and had death threats made against her for much of her life. This was a woman who stood so firmly with her principles that it often resulted in her deepest heartaches. An activist, author, and one of the most important speakers of her time. Now, you may not consider yourself an anarchist. But I assure you that if you are a woman with even remotely feminist views, you have Emma to thank. I'm your host, Siobhan Woodrow, and this is the story of Emma Goldman. She is defiant. She is a rule breaker. She is a revolutionary because she is who she is. She's a punk. 
Emma was born in 1869 within the Russian Empire in modern-day Lithuania. She immigrated to the United States just six months before the Haymarket Affair, and the ensuing drama captured her attention. She deeply empathized with the anarchists and saw the trial as a gross miscarriage of justice, an authoritarian crackdown on ideas that threatened the ruling class. You see, Emma came from a background with few freedoms and even fewer opportunities. Her father wouldn't allow her to go to school, telling her that it wasn't befitting of a Jewish girl, and that instead, she needed only to be good at cooking and raising children. Emma disagreed, and while her father was trying to arrange a marriage for her when she was just 15 years old, she made plans to escape. By 17, she had come to America and begun taking an interest in the labor movement that was pushing for workers' rights. That's where she met a man and soon got married, but she was very quickly dissatisfied with that marriage and ended it. Her family, who by this time had come to join her in Rochester, had really disapproved of her way of life. So she escaped again, but this time to New York City. It was 1888. To understand the labor movement, it's really important to know what working conditions were like at this time. You see, if you were really lucky, you might work 10 hours a day, six days a week. But if you weren't lucky, you'd work a hell of a lot more. Sometimes in the neighborhood of 14 hours a day and often with no days off, ever. Safety was not a consideration, injuries were often severe and not accommodated for, and there was literally no age limits or minimum wage. The working class were actually slaves. On her first day in New York, Emma wound up in Saks Cafe. This is a space where radicals kind of gathered and hung out and exchanged ideas. It was here that she met Alexander Berkman, a man who would become thoroughly entwined with the rest of her life. Together, later that same day, they went to go hear a speech by radical publisher Johann Most. This dude advocated for what he called propaganda of the deed. This meant affecting change through direct and violent action. Now, you gotta understand that at this time, going to hear people give speeches in the street was really one of the most important ways for people to exchange information. It was after Emma attended that speech that she began making speeches herself. Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist leader. I'm delighted to be back in the United States, the country where I had my innings in the social and economic struggle and where I decided to devote myself to the presentation of anarchism as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political and spiritual of the human race. And it really wasn't long before she became known in the radical community for her bold oration and fiery rhetoric. Huge crowds would gather to hear Emma's ideas about workers' rights and issues of class. She had a way of communicating with people that made them feel hopeful in a time of horrendous labor oppression. This is an incredible feat for, I mean, anyone, let alone a young 19-year-old Jewish woman. Emma wanted the working class to feel empowered. She knew that through education, people could have an opportunity to overthrow the systems that they were enslaved by and make a better lives for themselves and their family. And this is right around the time that Emma began to write books. They had titles like 
patriotism, a menace to liberty, and prisons, social crime and failure, which sounds so cool. Like, how are none of these album titles, by the way? (laughs) Somebody worked this out. Her work very quickly became revolutionary, and she was a highly regarded mind on the subject of anarchy and personal freedoms. But lest we forget that Emma was nothing but fire and brimstone. Let's remember that when you're speaking about historical figures, we're talking about real human people with human desires and emotions and vulnerabilities. You know, she was really never shy to speak about her feelings and often wrote about her loves, hopes, and heartbreaks. You know, for much of her activist career, she was a youth with youthful energy and appetites. If you've ever been a leftist youth, there's a really good chance that you've heard the quote that paraphrases Emma. It goes like this, check it out. <clears throat> if I can't dance, I don't want your revolution. It sounds familiar? Yeah? It's a quote that really examines the cross-section of personal expression and ideological beliefs. See, as the story goes, she was at a dance. Now, she was at this dance as an activist, apparently kind of looking to share information and potentially recruit new members to the anarchist cause. Even by this time in her early 20s, she had really built up a reputation for her angry and impassioned speeches. But by all accounts, including her own, she had a bit of another reputation. This is a girl who loved to cut a rug. Activism or not, this chick loved to dance, and if she was at a dance, she was gonna dance. One of her fellow activists pulled her aside at one point and chastised her, saying that it didn't behoove an agitator to dance. Later in her autobiography, she wrote, I told him to mind his own business. I was tired of having the cause constantly thrown in my face. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful idea, for anarchism, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice, should demand denial of life and joy. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to behave as a nun, and that the movement should not be turned into a cloister. If it meant that, I did not want it. I want freedom the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful and radiant things. A woman who had done so much for the anarchist movement was still being told how to behave, a standard that so many of us still deal with to this very day. Emma, even in her progressive social circles, was not allowed to be a whole person. It was already so difficult for a woman to be taken seriously in a political space that to deviate even slightly from her serious public persona would threaten everything that she had worked for. But that youthful energy had a more consequential side, to put it mildly. In 1892, when Goldman was still in her early 20s, another violent labor dispute was brewing in Homestead, Pennsylvania. And this time, Goldman didn't intend to be a mere observer. Members of the local Iron and Steel Workers Union were striking against the Carnegie Steel Company. After talks broke down, the factory's manager brought in strike breakers and guards to replace the striking workers. A firefight quickly broke out in Homestead between the workers and the guards. It was a standoff that lasted for hours, killed 16 people, wounded 23, and caused the governor of Pennsylvania to call the militia to break it up. The public and the media almost universally blamed the factory manager for the massacre. And hearing about it back in New York, Emma and Alexander Berkman decided that that situation called for some propaganda of the deed. Remember, affecting change through violent acts. 
By this time, Emma and Berkman had become friends and lovers and were living together in a communal apartment. When the news broke of the Homestead Massacre, they couldn't stand by and witness workers being abused. Enraged and appalled, they decided that they needed to take action that would inspire the workers to revolt against the capitalist system altogether. The plan was for Berkman to assassinate the factory manager, while Emma would stay behind to explain his motives in the event that he was arrested or killed. Berkman would be the deed, Emma would be the propaganda. No doubt we all did some wild shit in our youth, and generally that stuff can be forgiven, chalked up to youthful indiscretion. But this was for real. This isn't stealing cigarettes and drinking 40s in the alley. They were going to kill a guy, straight up, with a gun. Berkman sent off to Pennsylvania and bought a gun. He managed to shoot the factory manager three times and stabbed him in the leg before he was subdued and beaten unconscious by a group of workers that he had assumed would support him for these actions. They weren't the only ones who didn't support his actions, and the fallout was harsh. The factory manager survived the attack, but labor activists and anarchists alike denounced Berkman's actions. Police raided Emma's apartment and thoroughly investigated her, but they weren't able to connect her to any crimes. They were, however, able to convince her landlord to evict her. Worse still, her mentor, Johan Most, publicly condemned her for her involvement in the plot. Infuriated, she confronted him at a public lecture where she physically attacked him. For his part, Berkman was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 22 years in prison. Emma was devastated. Her best friend and lover was incarcerated. Her family had disowned her. Her comrades in the anarchist movement had rejected her. The very community that she had so passionately advocated for. Berkman's long incarceration would be a frequent topic in her personal writings and the rift between Emma and her anarchist friends became a great source of inner turmoil for the rest of her life. Emma was a prolific writer, and one of the most frequent topics of her personal writings was loneliness. The brash and reckless actions of her youth had brought her abandonment and isolation. Even for a person as principled as Emma was, you have to wonder about regret. She told a friend, at the age of 23, one does not reason a sentiment famously appropriated decades later by Blink-182. The following year set off what would end up becoming one of the most turbulent times in her life. An economic crisis hit known as the Panic of 1893, which eventually saw unemployment rates hit 20%. It was under these conditions that Emma made the speech that led to her first arrest. That August 21st, Emma spoke to a gathered crowd of around 3,000 mostly unemployed and infuriated people at Union Square. She was arrested for inciting to riot, but the exact language of her speech is unknown. Undercover agents had infiltrated the crowd, or at least claimed to, and insisted that she had commanded the crowd to violence. In the ensuing investigation and trial, she recounted the offending words this way. Demonstrate before the palaces of the rich. Demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. Before the trial, the arresting detective offered to drop the charges if Emma would identify other radicals. She threw a glass of ice water in his face. She was convicted and sentenced to a year in prison. 
The prosecutors and even the judge pointed out her anarchism and atheism to paint her as a dangerous woman. While she was in prison, she applied herself to learning and personal growth. She read constantly and studied medicine, which allowed her to take up nursing. She ended up serving 10 months in prison. Once she was released, she was able to support herself by giving interviews and lecturing. Over the next few years, she traveled around the United States and Europe, speaking and supporting anarchist causes. By 1901, Emma had settled into a relatively calm life. But the so-called Panic of 1893 was not finished unrolling its consequences. A young man named Leon Kalgosh had lost his factory job as a result of the panic. The injustice that he and others had suffered had led him to get involved in the workers' movements, where he was eventually exposed to anarchism. Throughout this period, he began to exhibit what we might describe as neuroatypical behavior. This dude withdrew from family and friends and became something of a recluse. And by 1901, he had begun going to some rather extraordinary lengths to meet his anarchist heroes in person, including Emma Goldman, who he had a couple of brief social encounters with. His behavior and speeches started to make people nervous around the anarchist circles, who suspected that he was an infiltrator based on his over-eagerness and multitude of questions, to the point where the radical newspaper, Free Society, issued a warning urging readers to be on the lookout for him. On August 31st, 1901, Leon traveled to Buffalo, New York, where U.S. President McKinley was going to greet the public in the Pan-American Exposition. Leon got into a lineup to shake the president's hand, and when he got to the front of the line, he shot the president twice in the abdomen. McKinley fell backward, and as the crowd violently descended on the shooter, he reportedly said, Go easy on him, boys. McKinley died eight days later. Leon was held in interrogation for days on end, and he told police that he had been inspired to take action after listening to Emma Goldman speak. And even though he insisted that she had nothing to do with the attack on the president, she was arrested and charged with conspiring to assassinate the president of the United States. She was held in close custody and subjected to intense interrogation. In her words, they gave her the third degree. These days, we would probably call it torture. She was released when the police failed to make any tangible connections between her and the assassination. While her anarchist comrades were quick to join the public and media in denouncing the assassination, Emma refused to condemn Leon. She wouldn't condone his attack, but she staunchly defended his character and refused to demonize him, calling him a super sensitive being. She called out her fellow anarchists for turning their backs on him, and interestingly, before McKinley died of his wounds, Emma was still in custody and she offered to lend her assistance in nursing him. She said that he was merely a human being. Emma Goldman saw everyone as a human being. But a public sentiment that the anarchist movement was responsible for the assassination was solidifying and the media came out strongly in condemnation of Emma Goldman. Emma was directly blamed for inspiring the assassination, which she was labeled as the High Priestess of Anarchy. It's a pretty good name. Soon after, once Theodore Roosevelt took McKinley's office in the White House, he vowed to crack down on the anarchist movement, promising to root out even passive sympathizers to the anarchist cause. The anarchist movement distanced itself from Emma once again. Once again, Emma was alone. 
Once again, Emma's rigid principles pushed her comrades to isolate her. Once again, a man's violent actions brought Emma harsh loneliness. Leon was convicted and executed. Emma withdrew from public life for a time. She took on a fake name to avoid public and political scrutiny and supported herself with private nursing jobs. And with her lover and her only remaining supporter still imprisoned, she truly was sinking into despair. She said of this time in her life, it was bitter and hard to face life anew. But ever the woman of principle, she couldn't stay away from activism for long. And in 1903, the U.S. Congress passed the Anarchist Exclusion Act, an anti-immigration measure that defined anarchists and other groups as inadmissible classes. And that gave authorities broad power to apprehend and deport these groups en masse. She joined with the Free Speech League in opposition of the law and helped propel some of the earliest victims all the way to the Supreme Court. By 1906, her return to activism was complete, and she felt the need within the movement for what she described as a place of expression for the young idealists in the arts and letters. So she started a publication called Mother Earth and staffed it with activists and radicals. She was the first editor and wrote frequent essays on the topics of feminism, labor, sexuality, atheism, and the anarchist movement. But her return from her brief flirtation with anonymity left her with mixed feelings. During this time, in one of her frequent letters to Berkman in prison, she wrote, I never felt so weighed down. I fear I am forever doomed to remain public property and to have my life worn out through the care of the lives of others. I don't know about you, but I really understand the feeling that the intense desire to protect and to nurture the people around you is simultaneously your purest purpose and your biggest flaw. Later that same year, Berkwin was finally released from prison after 14 years. After all that time, they had never stopped writing to one another. And finally, they would be reunited. We can only imagine how Emma must have felt. Her closest and most trusted friend, her lover and confidant, she would finally be able to see him and to touch him and be with him after 14 long years. But unfortunately, the reunion was as troubled as these things often are. Berkman had a difficult time adjusting to life in the outside world, while Emma described being seized by terror and pity at how pale and gaunt he had become. They had difficulty communicating, and an emotional gulf opened between them. Eventually, Berkman had an affair with a 15-year-old activist, and Emma was deeply hurt. But even then, she felt that his behavior was a result of his experience in prison. Emma Goldman, always finding the humanity. Emma and Berkman remained friends and comrades in activism, but they distanced themselves romantically. For the next several years, Emma relentlessly toured, giving speeches and generally agitating for anarchism. But she started becoming somewhat disillusioned, not with the cause, but with the audience. She felt that lecture audiences were increasingly being made up of only a small percentage of people who were actually engaged with the cause, and a majority who were just there to be amused. This led to a period of prolific essay writing, 
many of which were surprisingly personal and introspective. And it was during that time where she seemed to have a particular focus on women's issues, writing extensively on her feelings about marriage, sexuality, free love, and women's suffrage. It's interesting to note that Emma was always into radical ideology, feminism being quite radical at that time, but it really wasn't until that she was hurt as a woman that she really committed herself to advocating for women's rights. She fell in love again around this time with a former drifter who had gotten a medical degree and was known as the hobo doctor. They both believed in a philosophy they called freedom of the heart, or what we would might call today ethical non-monogamy. But while he exercised this freedom, Emma did not. She had a hard time reconciling her intellectual convictions with her emotional feelings. Emma was famous for her sober academic writing and speech, but it's worth remembering that a person's work doesn't exist separately from the human being. It's probably not a coincidence that in a period where she wrote the most about love and marriage and relationships was during a time in her life when she struggled with her feelings about these experiences. By 1914, America was barreling towards World War I, and the world was changing fast. The women's suffrage movement was in full force, and feminists were using their platform to advocate for broader women's issues. Prominent feminist Margaret Sanger was looking to spread awareness and promote the use of a newly developed contraception method, and coined the term birth control. Goldman had already been an advocate for access to contraception, and even though she generally disagreed with Sanger's tactics and some of her views, she saw it as an important opportunity, and she partnered with Sanger and fully committed to the birth control movement for two years, until 1916. She was arrested after giving a public lesson on the use of birth control under the Comstock Law, an infamous oppressive law that was meant for the suppression of trade and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. She refused to pay the $100 fine and was sentenced to two weeks in a labor prison. She described her time there as an opportunity to reconnect with those rejected by society. Meanwhile, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was getting ready to enter the war. Immediately after being elected under the slogan, he kept us out of the war. So when Congress passed a brand new law which forced men between the ages of 21 and 30 to enroll for military services, the public became suspicious that Wilson might not keep his promise. No kidding. Emma used her publication, Mother Earth, to issue a call for men to disobey this law. And, along with her old comrade, Alexander Berkman, she organized the No Conscription League. It would be noted that once America entered the war, almost everyone supported the war effort, if not the war itself. Many left-wing groups and previous anti-war efforts supported Wilson, even if they didn't go so far as to condone the war itself. But Emma did not budge. She would not allow a public shift in sentiment to affect her principles. She was arrested again under the newly enacted Espionage Act and held on $25,000 bail, equivalent to over $500,000 bail today. She defended both herself and Berkman in the trial and invoked the First Amendment. During the trial, she argued, 
We say that if America has entered the war to make the world safe for democracy, she must first make democracy safe in America. However, this did not work. And they were both convicted nonetheless. After receiving a two-year prison sentence, Emma wrote to a friend, two years imprisonment for having made an uncompromising stand for one's ideals. Why, that is a small price. While imprisoned, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the newly christened FBI, wrote that Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman are, beyond a doubt, two of the most dangerous anarchists in the country, and a return to the community will result in undue harm. Ms. Goldman, should the government here object to your speeches of anarchism, would you change them or leave the country? I will leave the country rather than deny my ideas. I prefer to stick to my gun. A month after her release, Emma was brought in for a deportation hearing. It was argued that, dig this, Emma's citizenship could be revoked because over a decade earlier, her husband had his citizenship revoked. That's right. Her husband. The one that she had briefly married as a teenager and divorced over 20 years previously. Remember that dude? The dude that we didn't even bother to name in one sentence? Yes. Him. With her citizenship in question, authorities were free to deport her under the Anarchist Exclusion Act. And she and Berkman were, in fact, deported back to Russia. For the next several years, she entered a period of what would be kind of listlessness. She moved around from Stockholm to Berlin and then to London, where the fear of deportation led her to accept a marriage offer from a Scottish anarchist. You see, these two had only been acquaintances by all accounts and really nothing ever more. But in fact, during this time, she wrote of depression in letters back to Berkman, who stayed in Russia. She said, I'm awfully tired and so lonely and heartsick. It is a dreadful feeling to come back here to lectures and not find a kindred soul. No one who cares whether or not one is dead or alive. She supported different causes that she valued and different places that she visited. But most noted leftist theorists at this time were firmly behind communism and did not appreciate her radicalism. She came to Canada and heard of two more anarchists set to be executed in Boston. She longed to go there and join the demonstrations, but she wasn't allowed back in the country, and she wrote of being overwhelmed by memories of the Haymarket affair from her youth. She said, Then I had my life before me to take up the causes for those killed. Now I have nothing. In her late 20s, she wrote her autobiography. Berkman, still in Europe, was actually very critical of early drafts of the book, which put a further strain on their relationship. Emma insisted that the book be published in one volume and for no more than $5, so that way the working class could afford to buy it. However, her publisher went behind her back and released the book in two volumes for $7.50, and she was completely powerless to change it. In 1936, Emma was in France, and after celebrating her 67th birthday, she wrote to Berkman to express her sadness that he wasn't there with her to celebrate. Before he could even receive the letter, Emma got word that Berkman was in great distress. She immediately went to him, but when she got there, he had shot himself. He died that evening. Emma spent her later years involved in supporting the Spanish anarchists in the Spanish Civil War. It was the same war that launched thousands of Clash songs. 
There, her principles were tested once again as she condemned the anarchist forces for forming a coalition with other leftist organizations that she deemed to be authoritarian or oppressively status. While she refused to condone these organizations, she conceded that the fight against fascism was more important. Evidently, our Iron Woman had gotten a little soft in her old age. After the anarchist's defeat by the fascists in Spain, she returned to London but felt repressed there. She called it more fascist than fascists. So, in 1939, she moved to Toronto. With World War II getting ready to break out, Emma continued to oppose any war waged by the government. She said, As much as I loathe Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and Franco, I would not support a war against them because that is just fascism in disguise. She worried that this coming war would end in a new form of madness in the world. And for you, a punk in 1986, at the height of the Cold War, planting an anarchy flag on a statue to commemorate martyred anarchists, those words feel awfully true. Emma Goldman died in Toronto on May 14, 1940, at the age of 70, after suffering a stroke. She had chosen to be buried not in her home country, or in her adoptive home of New York City, or in any of the many places that she lived during her time. She chose to be buried at the Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois, alongside the men executed after the Haymarket Affair. It's all too easy to reduce historical figures to their official portraits or mugshot or wanted poster, whichever the case may be. But Emma Goldman reminds us that these are complex human beings who succeeded and struggled just like any of us. Emma consistently focused on her ideologies. Her tactics matured as she did, and her emotions didn't always cooperate with her principles. Her radical approach struck a chord with thousands of people and still echoes today. But that same radicalism also led to vilification and times of isolation. The depth of her empathy allowed her to show compassion for both assassins and targets. But that same empathy took a major emotional toll throughout her life. She was called the most dangerous woman in America at a time when women could be arrested for talking about birth control or deported for opposing war. For those who wanted to maintain the status quo, maybe she was. But for the rest of us, she is a reminder to take our values seriously, to always live our principles, and that it does behoove an agitator to dance. I'm your host, Siobhan Woodrow. Thank you so, so much for listening to this one. This episode um, took a lot of effort, took a lot of work to put this thing together, but I really loved telling the story of Emma Goldman just because she's such a unique figure in history. There's so much about her story that really struck a chord with me because I just love the idea of a person caring about their value so much that they're just unwavering. And she really was throughout her whole life. She was unwavering in her determination to be true to all the things that she felt and the causes that she was a champion for. And this is so admirable. So I, I loved thinking about and learning about and telling the story of Emma Goldman. And uh, if you liked it, I'm, I hope you did. 
I know it's a lot of history, so this is either going to be a lot of people's favorite episode or a lot of people's worst episode. So I don't know where this falls with you, but these are the types of things that we plan to do a little bit more of with She's a Punk in the future is do these historical deep dives. So let me know, is there somebody that you're aware of in history, punk, feminism, political, whatever, that you think that we should do an episode on? Let me know. You know, I'm only one person with one perspective. Uh, you know, we all kind of have like a information bias of, of where we know stuff about the things that we know in history. So if you know somebody that we should uh, give the old She's a Punk treatment to, by all means, let me know. You can always email me at She's a Punk Podcast at gmail.com. You know, you can always uh, get at me on Instagram at She's a Punk Podcast. You can do that there. Or you can go to She's a Punk.com. I literally, there's like a, there's so many ways for you to get in touch with me, and I love uh, interacting with you, so please do that. And, and, you know, if you have the time or the energy in your day, rate and review the podcast. Tell a friend. That's how we can keep making these things. Let's all stay in touch. That's how we make sure this whole operation it can keep going. And by whole operation, I mean me sitting inside of a tiny booth in my apartment. So, by all means, do that. And by the by, if it's worth it to you, if you're like, holy shit, dude, I fucking love Emma Goldman. This chick's amazing. She's complicated. She didn't always do the right thing, but she is incredible, and I love knowing about her. We made a shirt. Like, literally made it. I handmade it in my apartment, silkscreened it myself. The image itself is incredible. It's actually from her mugshot that was put in the newspaper uh, when they were calling her the High Priestess of Anarchy. So... The, the image is her mugshot from the newspaper, and it's a, a beautiful image. It's so incredible, and then I silkscreen it by hand. Uh, I make these shirts uh, in my apartment. <laughs> so you can buy one if you want. I, I think they're fucking cool, man. If you want, go to she'sapunk.com, uh, and you can order them there, and it helps. It just helps me keep my Adobe subscription. It's pretty good. I think it's a fucking cool shirt, and it helps me continue to make the podcast. So it's, it's win-win. Wait a minute. All right, I gotta get out of here. I'm actually very sick today. I hope I didn't sound like shit through this whole episode. I'm so sorry. It's not Corona. I don't know. It's just, I don't feel good, okay? So I'm gonna go. But thank you so much. I'm so stoked to be fucking back for season two. I will see you again in another few days. I love you for listening and trust your gut. <laughs>